0: Well, hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in today to Agriculture of America. We've got a lot happening in the world of agriculture today and, in fact, the world outside of agriculture a little bit. We're going to speak about the changes the dairy industry would like to see in the 2023 Farm Bill here in just a moment. And in segment two, we're going to talk with Kurt Cobb. He's a researcher in the energy space. He's got concerns about helium supplies globally. We'll talk about that. And then Tim Bluebaugh from the Engine Manufacturers Association will join us to run down the Clean Trucks Initiative and what that could mean for farmers as we go into the future. And finally, we're going to close the show with Garrett Toy to dig into these markets. But before we talk about all of that, let's recap what happened earlier this week at the House Ag Committee. Joining me today is Paul Blyberg from the National Milk Producers Federation. He is the Senior Vice President of Government Relations. Paul, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Mike, for having me on.
0: Let's talk about this hearing. The House Ag Committee wanted to hear from dairy producers to get their insights for the 2023 Farm Bill. Paul, what are the top priorities for the National Milk Producers Federation?
1: Sure. Well, I think our our top priorities in the Farm Bill uh, you know are going to be to continue to build on the safety net and risk management tools that we secured in the 2018 farm bill and make sure those continue to be effective for farmers of all sizes I think heading into the last farm bill in 2018 uh, dairy farmers didn't have a safety net that was working it was well intended but it wasn't functioning well so the new dairy margin coverage program has been a great success uh, over the last several years and in addition to that dairy farmers now have access to risk management options on the rma side as well so first of all we're going to want to do no harm and maintain those wins that we were able to secure in the previous Farm Bill and the Bipartisan Budget Act that went along with it. And there can always be room for some tweaking. Uh, but, you know, by and large, those programs are very effective. Sure, the second area that we focused on at the hearing yesterday relates to some pricing issues that the COVID-19 pandemic really spotlighted, even if it didn't directly create them. And, uh, you know, we are working right now within National Milk and across the dairy industry really broadly to see if we can reach consensus around some improvements to the federal milk marketing order system and that we can take to USDA for them to consider in a national federal order hearing. And we think it's really important to be talking about that issue with the ag committees as well, given that they do have jurisdiction over the process. And even if it's something that's ultimately done through USDA, we still want to have the committees aware and bought into what we're doing. And so Lolly Lesher, our witness, spent a great deal of time talking about that issue yesterday as well.
0: Yes, and it was fascinating for folks outside the dairy industry, Paul, as as you're well aware, pricing in that sector can be very hard to understand. And Lolly emphasized the, the challenges that the federal mark, mar, the federal milk marketing order system created by changing the class 1 mover in 2018. Paul, for those of us outside this space, what is the class 1 mover and why does
1: it matter? Absolutely. The class 1 mover is a key uh, component of the class 1 price. And the class one mover is really a nationwide figure. The differentials obviously vary around the country, but the class one mover was modified in the last farm bill as part of an agreement between us and the dairy processor community at the processor community's request to maintain revenue for farmers, in other words, to not cost farmers. Uh, in price revenue relative to the previous mover, but to help uh, fluid processors with uh, with hedging. And while what we agreed on in 2018, we all analyzed and thought would be effective in that regard, unfortunately, COVID-19 put a spotlight on the fact that whenever the class three and class four prices diverge significantly, as, as Lolly talked about, uh, farmers are going to lose a lot of money relative to what they would have earned under the old mover. And that's obviously not what anybody intended. And because the two movers will often try closely together, but the new mover will never really meaningfully outperform the old mover. Uh, It's going to be very difficult for the new mover to ever make up those losses when an event like 2020 happens and you kind of have a six-month gulf there in the latter part of the year where farmers lost a lot.
0: And I was really amazed when she was discussing the dollar figures that were impacted here for the dairy industry. But before we get to that, Paul, class three, class four, different types of milk. What is class three used for and where do we see class four used?
1: Sure. So class three is, you know, reference for milk that's used for cheese, and class four tends to be reference for butter, powder, things like that. So on a regional basis, there can be a lot of variability there. In the upper Midwest, for instance, at much of the milk in Wisconsin and Minnesota, the overall, overwhelming majority of it is put toward class three, milk, right, because it goes toward cheese. Now, in a given federal order area, you know, farmers will be paid a blend price of all four classes in that order, and, and that's weighted toward the use of milk in the order. It's not that they're just going to be paid on one price if, if their handler is pooled on the order, right? They will get paid that, that blend price. Uh, so that's a little bit of what those two different price points uh, refer to.
0: Gotcha. So in the pandemic, as we saw consumption habits change and cheese went one way, butter went another way, those prices diverged and dairy farmers noticed that hit. How much money do we estimate was lost?
1: Sure. So on a nationwide basis, we estimate that just over $750 million, so about three-quarters of a billion, really, was lost during that six-month window. Three-quarters of a billion is a large amount for something that wasn't intended, thought about, period, but certainly for something that wasn't intended to uh, have that effect. Now, obviously, the impacts were different on a regional basis, and in in areas like the Southeast, for instance, where Class One utilization is very significant, that impact would be even more acutely felt, but it it was felt across the board in different ways.
0: All right, Paul. So, with that dollar figure in mind and this issue in the community right now, how are these conversations going about getting that class one mover? Would you like it to revert back to the old practice, or is there a new compromise method you're seeking?
1: Well, I think we're still figuring that out. You know, we've been having great discussions within the National Milk Producers Federation's Economic Policy Committee, thinking about different ideas, not just on the class one mover, but on other federal order issues as well. I think we're of the view now. That Given that there are a number of areas that may be in need of some tweaking, it's best to try to proceed with kind of a larger package, right? So the class one mover is one of a multitude of issues that we are reviewing. Part of the reason why we focused on it so much in our testimony yesterday was because the hearing was a review of what was done in the 2018 Farm Bill in many ways, and that provision was done there. And so obviously it's a very significant issue that we're working to have resolved. But we did give it some attention in particular at the hearing, given that it was a congressionally directed uh, change.
0: That makes sense from the previous writing of the Farm Bill. Paul, before we let you go, this work on the 2023 Farm Bill, no doubt, is just beginning. Where can folks go to stay up to date with the work the National Milk Producers Federation is pursuing with regard to this Farm Bill?
1: Well, they can go to our website, www.mmpf.org, and they can see all of our press releases and different updates that we're putting out and then get on our different mailing lists that are that are available for folks and they can see not only our, our daily press re, you know, press releases and statements that we put out but other publications as well and get a feel for not only the different hearings that we're engaged in as those conversations start but also just some of the issues that we're examining more broadly
0: all right things to keep in mind there folks we have been talking with paul blyberg the senior vice president for government relations at the nmpf paul thanks for joining us today
1: thanks mike for having me on
0: And folks, we also had some other news in the dairy industry come out earlier this week. Michael Dykes, president and CEO of the International Dairy Food Association, hailed the release on Tuesday of the bipartisan Keep Kids Fed Act that would help provide more healthy meals to children across the country this summer and would ensure daycares and schools have the financial resources needed to weather continuing supply chain challenges and, of course, high food costs in the 2022-2023 school year. Folks, stick around. We're going to be talking to Kurt Cobb about the state of helium supplies globally when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America don't go away more
3: AOA coming right up
4: it's been said that when someone you love
3: has Parkinson's you have Parkinson's the Parkinson's foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed it affects everyone who supports and helps care for them
1: if you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's a
5: neurological disease that affects movement we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help
3: if you have questions The Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight.
5: We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support.
3: Give you tips for living a better life. And share the
5: latest research. Find your answers and join
1: us in the fight against Parkinson's.
3: To learn more, please go to parkinson.org
1: or call 1-800-473-4636. That's
3: 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better Better lives. lives together.
5: Join us every
0: Tuesday for Around the Table brought to you by CHS as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
3: Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man.
0: You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed, AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, if there has been one theme in the commodity markets here over the past 18 months, it is tightness in supply. We've talked about that each week when we've had our market guests on, whether we're talking corn, soybeans, nearly every commodity we deal with, we have a very tight supply situation right now, and that is contributing to the run-up in prices we're seeing throughout the economy. However, there is another commodity, an element, in fact, which has had very tight supplies for some time, and those supplies continue to get tighter. We're gonna be speaking with Kurt Cobb. He's an energy market researcher, speaker, and author at Resource Insights about the state of helium. Kurt, thanks for joining us here on AOA today.
6: Mike, thanks for having me on.
0: Let's start with the headline. Kurt, what is happening with helium supplies globally right now? Where do we sit?
6: Well, supplies are very tight and I suspect they're gonna get tighter. Uh, What happened was in, 2018, the federal helium program came to an end. They stopped selling helium into the market, and they were hoping that private uh, interests would take over the helium market and find it and supply it to the market, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. We could go into that if you want to, and uh, prices that were uh, $78 per 1,000 cubic feet in 2016 are now probably around $200 and rising. So that's where we stand today.
0: Wow, so we have drawn down these supplies. Kurt, do we have a handle on how much helium, accessible helium is left in the world as we sit here in 2022?
6: We do not because there's really no one gathering those statistics. And actually up until uh, last 10 or 15 years, the US government was the main supplier of helium to the world. They had not a monopoly, but uh, a very large share of the market and they regarded it as a strategic resource. So they weren't interested in providing information to the public about what the supplies were. Now, nobody's keeping track, and so we just don't know.
0: Kurt, you have been following this story for 10, 12, 13 years now. In that time, what has happened in the helium space? What kind of transitions has the industry gone through? You mentioned US government got out of the business.
6: Well, the U.S. government got into the business in 1925, and they had a virtual monopoly worldwide until probably the 40s or 50s when other suppliers, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, found that they could extract helium from natural gas uh, wells. And so while they didn't have a monopoly after that, they were still the major player. They provided it to the public, to industry, and it was only in the 90s that the government decided, the U.S. government decided that they were going to get out of the business. And they're still not completely out of it, but they began to sell off their stockpile. And when they did that, they, they set up a schedule that they wanted, we wanted to sell off so much by such and such a time. So the federal helium program lowered prices in order to push more helium out the door so they could get rid of the helium they have in their stockpiles. This of course completely destroyed incentives for private industry to get into the business, which was the whole point of the government getting out. So until that uh, that stockpile was sold off in in, in twenty eighteen, very few people wanted to get into the business uh, and and risk money not knowing what prices were going to be. Well now we know what the prices are going to be. And there are a number of people who are trying to get into the business, but not in time to supply us what we need today.
0: Well, and I think that's the crucial conversation with supplies of helium. We in agriculture talk about supplies being tight and well, we increase acres right to meet that demand that's reflected in this price with helium. Kurt, what is growing the supply pipeline look like?
6: Can we? Well, it's possible. Uh, back when prices are $78 a thousand cubic feet, uh, it's pretty hard to go into uh, natural gas uh, fields where the percentage of helium is is pretty low and justify extracting it. I mean, you need temperatures of minus 429 degrees Fahrenheit to get this stuff out of the natural gas to precipitate it out so that you you can separate it. So you have to have a considerable amount uh, when I say considerable, the supplies we have in the United States are up to seven percent that 's a huge huge concentration compared to helium worldwide in natural gas wells. So I think what 's going to happen is uh, companies are going to find out that there are wells that don 't produce that high a percentage, but uh, with the new with the new pricing, they can probably go down to two or three percent and make some money so that 's starting to happen. There are other companies that are saying, let's find helium resources in reservoirs that nobody's tapping. They may be reservoirs of primarily carbon dioxide that nobody needs, uh, because we can get that much more cheaply uh, in other ways. But those same reservoirs uh, are likely to hold helium, because that's essentially how helium gets into those reservoirs, is it it comes from radioactive decay of elements in the Earth that are Emit alpha particles, which are just nuclei of helium. They combine with uh, electrons as they move through the uh, through the ground and then they hit a cap and they can't go any further. Uh, and they, so they end up in, in reservoirs for natural gas and, and other gas reservoirs under the earth. The rest of it just goes up into the atmosphere and out into space. So that's that's not helping us at all.
0: No, it isn't. And Kurt, I hear you talk about this, that jump in prices from 78 bucks to $200 plus per thousand cubic feet. And I've got to wonder, why do we care? Maybe birthday present balloons get more expensive. Maybe the Goodyear blimp gets parked in its shed. Why does this matter, this helium shortage that we're looking at here globally?
6: Well, just remember, and I think you said this in your intro, helium is an element. We can't make it from some something else that's more plentiful. And even though it's the second largest or the, the second largest uh, element in the universe in terms of, of quantity on Earth, it's very rare. So what do we use it for that's so important? If you had uh, an MRI in a hospital, you were using helium because it needs super low temperatures for the superconductivity that is necessary for a machine like that. Uh, All of the uh, computers that we use, that use silicon wafers, those silicon wafers have to be made in an environment that's very, very clean and that doesn't allow for oxygen. And helium is used for the production of silicon crystals because it has uh, a lot of good properties. is inert, it doesn't interact with other elements, uh, so it keeps everything clean, and it's also very good at dissipating heat because there's a lot of heat when you're creating silicon crystals. It's used for certain kinds of welding because it creates better welds if you have the weld made in a helium environment. Uh, Of course, uh, it's used for airships, uh, and uh, that's actually something that's coming back. There was an airline in Spain that's ordered Uh, uh, I think, 10 airships to be delivered in 2026. So uh, that'll be a new and interesting uh, way for us to get around uh, instead of using regular airplanes. Uh, It will. It affects everyone, actually
0: so i'm curious one of the things that i've learned just about helium from from reading your work really kurt is that the us and then you mentioned middle east and north africa are all key helium producers and importantly so is russia has the russia Ukraine ukraine crisis caused any disruptions to the helium industry or is it all pretty localized
6: well it's hard to tell because there's no a central market for helium so we just don't know where the supplies are going and coming from, and what the, the true prices are. But my guess is that um, as natural gas supplies from Russia are redirected uh, to other customers, that uh, they're probably redirecting any helium supplies to other customers as well because of trade sanctions. So
0: that certainly makes sense. Today, but
6: I would say that's a negative.
0: I was also wondering, Kurt, as we see this run up in natural gas prices, I think my assumption would be that we would see more drilling for that natural gas. As we increase natural gas drilling, is there the possibility that we'll increase our helium production right along with it?
6: Only if those reservoirs contain enough helium to make it worthwhile to extract it. Uh, Most don't. And I know of no—I know a lot of the new gas is coming from shale. Uh, I know of no helium production facilities that are being uh, designed uh, around the shale fields. Uh, they mostly come from uh, uh, conventional reservoirs, uh, and I think my guess is those are just uh, better reservoirs for for containing the gas and keeping it uh, from uh, going off into the air and into space.
0: Gotcha, that cap at the top locks it all down. Kurt, you have been talking about this, as I mentioned, for about 13 years. You've been covering along with other energy related topics. Can you tell our listeners, where can they go to keep up to speed with the work you're doing?
6: Well, uh, the easiest way to do that is to uh, get on any search engine and put in Kurt Cobb, K-U-R-T, and C-O-double-B, C as in cat, O-double-B as in boy, and my work will come up, uh, resource insights will come up. And you'll be able to keep up on things that I think are interesting and important.
0: Well, thank you for bringing this to my attention, Kurt. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show today and sharing this with all of us.
6: Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: And folks, stick around. We'll be talking to Tim Bluebaugh of the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association when we return about the Cleaner Trucks Initiative. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Soil, the final
1: frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before.
6: Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. that's fleet,
1: <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station.
7: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, it's been an ugly week of trading across the crop markets. Prices have fallen lower, breaking through technical support lines on the charts, leading the spec funds to liquidate some of their net longs and increasing selling pressure. Seen a lot of sell stops triggered here in the trade as well. It's really just been a rough week. Through the overnight session, we saw some strength, and we are starting to see some of that strength wane now as we work through in our mid-morning. The spot July corn contract put in another interesting technical low overnight as grain markets reverse course in the early morning hours despite wheat driving the strongest rebound with around a 30 cent bounce from its overnight bottom now the grains have no real fundamental support heading into the weekend other than a tight overall supply and demand situation in the upcoming june stocks and acreage reports upcoming u.s corn belt weather should be generally favorable for crop development and world powers continue to deliver a lot of rhetoric on the ukraine grain situation with no real action yet to be seen Now I mentioned the markets, uh, we're starting to back off our highs, starting to see a little pressure come in here. Be interesting to see the dynamic in the trade throughout the day. Also coming up this afternoon, we have a cattle on feed report. The average estimates for on feed as of June 1st, 101.5%. May placements 99.7% in marketing's in May 103%. That's something that's going to be hovering over the cattle trade today as we have mixed action. Live cattle a little bit higher, feeders a little lower, and lean hogs trading their way higher. Right now, September corn eight and a half higher, 6.75 and a quarter. August beans down two and a half, 15.04 and three quarters. September Chicago wheat up four and three quarters, 9.54. September KC wheat down two and a quarter, 10.08 and a half. July spring wheat down two and a half, 10.78. June live cattle up 57, 135.82. August feeders down 65, 174.20. July hogs up 152, 110.07. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting.
4: What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease.
0: Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA.
0: Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. One of the chief concerns that we hear repeatedly coming out of Washington, D.C. is the concern for the environment and notably air quality. The EPA has been aggressively working to raise standards on tailpipe emissions across all classes of vehicles, including heavy and medium duty trucks. They've announced their clean trucks plan and recently proposed some new rules on nitrous oxide. Joining me to talk about that and the general general direction for clean truck and engine manufacturing is Tim Bluebaugh. He's an executive vice president at the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today.
8: Thanks for having me, Mike. Glad to be here.
0: Let's talk about what the EPA is working on with this clean trucks plan. Tim, what are their overarching goals?
8: Yeah, what EPA is trying to do, Mike, is they've proposed a rule a couple months ago and they're expecting to finalize it this year to significantly reduce the oxides of nitrogen emissions, the NOx emissions from medium and heavy duty trucks. These are the emissions, the NOx is a precursor to ozone, it, it produces smog, and they're trying to take uh, and reduce the existing emissions from those new trucks.
0: All right. So working on getting that air cleaned up, removing particulates. How has EPA, how do they intend to lower the total NOx emissions?
8: Well, it's right now, it's only a proposed rule and they have a couple options. They plan to, the option one would reduce the emissions in two steps for new trucks built in 2027 and further reduced in 2020-31. And option two is a single step program to reduce the NOx emissions only in 2027. Uh, what they will do with this rule is drive, primarily drive new after treatment emissions technologies.
0: Okay, by that you mean for folks that, you know, we familiar with DEF, would it be something comparable to that?
8: Yeah, in fact, it will use the selective catalytic reduction technology, the SCR technology that was, that was first deployed in 2010 that requires the diesel exhaust fluid, the DEF fluid, to make it work. Uh, it will be an enhanced version of that, probably require greatly uh, increased consumption of DEF in the after treatment.
0: Okay, and that would be true with, with either option. Should EPA pursue either one? We're looking at using more DEF in the engines?
8: Yeah, both options will use more DEF. Uh, the first option is modeled after California's omnibus NOx rule that was finalized last year. And, and we have some great concerns. We represent the, the truck and engine manufacturers, and we have some great concerns that that approach is feasible and implement, implementable. We think
0: well, got let's talk about those concerns then, Tim. This option one, the two-phased approach, looking at a 90% reduction in NOx emissions. What, what are the concerns that you're hearing from engine manufacturers? What are the technological uh, you know, hindrances or hurdles uh, with regard to option one?
8: Yeah, our current technology that's been in place since 2010 is very close to zero. And this rule would cut it still closer to zero. As you get closer and closer to zero, it becomes very difficult to do things like actually measure the emissions. The the technologies to measure the emissions can't measure it that low. Or the manufacturers need compliance margin so that they can account for some variability in production. But as you get closer and closer to zero, it becomes impossible to have that compliance margin. In effect, what manufacturers have to do is they have to get lower than the standard so that they can account for the variability and still be in compliance. When you're close to zero, there's no room to go lower.
0: That certainly makes sense. Of course, we've got the law of diminishing returns. As you mentioned there, as things get closer and closer to zero, getting those extra gains can be so hard. And I'm wondering if we're we're running more depth, particularly with option one, what sort of horsepower requirements on the engine could be required to power just the Knox removal systems?
8: Yeah, uh, Mike, it's not so much horsepower, but it's cost. This, The DEF will, of course, cost a truck operator more money. We estimate it to be about $10,000 in increased DEF costs over the life of the vehicle. And the upfront purchase price to purchase this new technology and some of the warranty requirements that that EPA has proposed could increase the cost of a heavy-duty truck more than $31,000.
0: Tim, you mentioned that option one is modeled after California's law. Is that law in place, and how are manufacturers working to comply with it today?
8: Yeah, the law was finalized last year, and so it is in place. It doesn't go into effect until 2024 and has another step down in 2027 and again in 2031. Uh, Right now, manufacturers are very concerned about the the viability of the diesel engine in the on-highway market in california based on this law right now we do not think it's implementable
0: wow what what does that mean long term there's a lot of trucks in california there's a lot of goods that need to get where they're going how do we work through this as an industry
8: we, we are trying to work through it. There are different options. Some, some uh, manufacturers have looked at natural gas as, as, a, as a path forward. Um, I know the manufacturers are working very hard to try to figure out how to comply, uh, but right, near, right now there is no clear path.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, let's talk about that option two. The EPA has proposed the single step 75% reduction in NOx emissions. Technically, is that feasible today roughly with the technology we have on hand?
8: It, It will require new technology, but we believe that option two could serve as the basis of a workable and implementable final rule. We think it can be achievable with realistic new technology that won't reach the high costs that we're seeing, we're expected with option one. And so we think it's technologically achievable and commercially achievable. Uh, fleets have to be willing to buy these new trucks. And if they're, new, if they're too expensive, the fleets will avoid them.
0: Tim, I think that's a crucial point, and I'm glad you brought it up. The idea that all of these improvements that we're making in new trucks only make sense if trucking firms get out there and buy the new trucks. If they're too expensive and they keep running their older models, they're going to continue to pollute. Are there in the California law or perhaps under the EPA proposal, would existing trucks be grandfathered in or would they have to be retrofitted to comply?
8: That's a great point, Mike. These rules, both the California rule and EPA's proposed rule, will only affect new truck sales. So the existing fleet of trucks will not be affected by these rules. And that's our concern, is that if the new rules are unworkable or too expensive, and fleets don't buy the new trucks, they'll just continue to operate the old trucks longer. They'll invest in maintaining them instead of buying new products, and we won't see the environmental benefits.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. We've got to get the new technology out there. Tim, I understand with these different options proposed by the EPA, there is the NOx emissions component, but then there's also an increase in useful life period. How do those get factored into the research that's being done?
8: Yeah. That's one of the most challenging aspects of both the California rule and the EPA proposal is that they're increasing the useful life. That's the period of time within which a manufacturer must maintain compliance to the standard. So because of deterioration in the the after-treatment systems, the, the emissions will increase slightly over time, and so the manufacturer has to aim below the standard so that over the useful life, when it gets to the end of the useful life, it will still be in compliance. They're proposing, EPA's proposing extending the useful life a great deal to the point where the manufacturer may have to replace the after-treatment system sometime within that useful life in order to deal with the deterioration and remain in compliance. And if they have to do that, they'll have to add that cost upfront to the price of the vehicle. And it could be, a, it, that's what's driving the, the $31,000. Ah,
0: okay. That makes sense, Tim. And as long as we're talking cost, of course, my assumption is anytime we're adding things to the engine, what's going to take, you know, potentially more power to make these things work. I'm curious, what would be the impact on, on fuel mileage as these improvements get worked through the, uh, the engine technology?
8: That's a great question mike we're we're not sure that the jury's still out uh we've been following epa 's demonstration studies that they're doing at a research lab in San Antonio, and it has shown increases in fuel consumption, but it's also shown decreases and that 's because one of the technologies that EPA is looking at is cylinder deactivation that will both decrease emissions and decrease fuel consumption fuel consumption so right now the jury's still out we're not sure that it will actually increase fuel consumption it may be it may not
0: okay all right Tim. as you look out this rule has been proposed what what are your expectations for finalization implementation do we have an idea on a timeline
8: EPA is trying to wrap this rule up this year. We're working closely with them to try to get them to finalize a reasonable, implementable, effective rule, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to do that. They are on a, uh, a very fast track to get this done. We fully expect them to finalize the rule this year and have it implemented with model year 2027 new vehicles.
0: All right, Tim, EMA has been keeping track of this issue, putting out some great information on the impacts of it. Where can folks go to keep up to date with the work you're doing?
8: Yeah, we recommend that people go. We set up a special website for this. It is cleantruckfacts.org, and we have a ton of information there and ways you can get involved and
9: stay up to date.
0: Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show and for filling us in. We'll continue to watch this issue as trucking remains a vital force for American industry. Thanks for joining us today.
8: Thanks much, Mike. I enjoyed it.
0: That was Tim Bluebaugh, executive vice president of the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association. And when we return, we're going to talk markets with Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more
1: aoa coming right up 54 so basically it's too late to start saving for retirement right not
3: right starting to save even in your 50s can really make a difference
1: well right now saving seems hard to wrap my head around Plus, with the way this year's been going...
3: (laughs) Hey listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes.
1: I like three minutes.
3: Yeah, at aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle.
10: I like that too.
3: Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis.
2: A medical chart is not your identity.
3: And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage.
2: An advocate for hope.
3: You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding.
2: We're fighting macular degeneration.
6: Retinitis pigmentosa
1: Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me, you don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safexcavator.com for more info.
10: The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving off from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Egg Network.
6: It's been our legacy year after year, and we're proud of our heritage. At FS, our focus has been on improving growers' profitability by developing leading products and services to advance operations. Year after year, we've been committed to pointing the way forward. So visit fssystem.com, and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next.
4: I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.
0: Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Yesterday in the green markets, we saw, well, the helium, so to speak, come out of that market. And we just saw a steady sell-off all day. Prices caught in the overnight. Joining us today to bring us up to speed on what's going on in the commodity trade is Garrett Toy, author of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, thanks for joining us today.
9: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk about what's going on today. We've got a nice little bounce going on in corn and in soybeans. Garrett, is this just some, some uh, short covering from yesterday?
9: It sure feels like it. I mean, beans traded to some key psychological levels overnight. Um, and the market this morning has been relatively subdued. So it kind of gives me an idea that this is some weekend covering. At some point, we're going to, you know, you know, we've had it. We say taking the helium out of the balloon—that's a perfect analogy. Um, but it's something—it's it's macro-driven forecasts. We're adding some moisture in earlier in the week. It kind of started in China earlier in the week with a uh, metals market collapse and veg oil collapse. But at some point, the market's going to focus on the end of month reports. Uh, you know, the the stocks and acres report next week. And considering the sell-off that we've had, you know, I think maybe—and it's also option expiration today. Um, that um, at the end of the day, that we might see some sta- stability here and, and maybe some some bottom picking, uh, but the key areas here is you know, November beans. We traded to thirteen ninety nine a quarter. We tried to probe sub fourteen dollars, um, and similar with beans, uh, we traded sub uh, sixteen dollars, and we were in the midst of what looked like another meltdown down again overnight uh, until that eight o'clock hour and that's when the Asian markets open and, and, and we kind of bounced and, and perhaps that might be a good sign because the sell-off uh, in my opinion, uh, partially started uh, in Asia to begin with. So maybe we're seeing some 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 covering in here.
0: All right, Darren. We saw the corn. Mar- excuse me. Sorry, Garrett. We saw the corn market bounce as well, but the wheat market continuing to see weakness here. Is this just ongoing liquidation, or has something else changed in that market?
9: No, it's long liquidation in here. But I really, I think that we stabilize wheat probably closer than corn. Um, because, uh, you know, in reality, we, the, the, the cracks we've had, we're down dang near 80 cents of September wheat uh, through the 7.45 break this morning. We're down one to three cents here this morning. But U.S. soft wheat is, is uh, you know, probably the cheapest wheat in the world through September now. Um, And uh, I, I don't know if i necessarily, we're kind of getting to the areas of between, um you know, money flow liquidation of length and wheat to a fundamental le- level where, Weed has some value in here, and, and if you look at the tenders that we had this week, Algeria, Tunisia, uh, even Saudis, most of that went to, uh, you know, European origins. The, obviously, the only difference is, is, is logistics and, and freight at this point, but, you know, U.S. weed is, is some $20, you know, about $20 a ton cheaper than, than uh, any other wheat in the world uh, right now. So I don't know. From a selling standpoint, I probably wouldn't uh, be looking at a short position. wheat at these levels,
0: and we're still the cheapest wheat in the world, even with the dollar trading here at one hundred three, one hundred four, and change.
9: Right? Yeah, we're we're still. The, the difference is the logistics and the freight at this point. I mean, that's the, we should see exports start to pick up here uh, a little bit, uh, and I think you're starting to see that a little bit with the the, 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 the spreads it collapsed in uh, wheat, the soft red wheat spreads traded out towards 15, 15.5. Uh, the spreads are really starting to firm up in here, and I think you're starting to see some of that covering in here.
0: All right, Garrett, looking back to the corn market, we're seeing a new crop December contract climbing the fastest today, uh, new crops up 13 and a half as of now. September's up 12 July up four and a quarter of course option or ex- expiration is in place. Garrett, what's going on? What's the fear related to the new crop? Are we just it's the weekend don't want any uh, surprises as uh, over the next couple days?
9: Well, no. I mean, essentially, at this point, new crop is the is the lead contract, and you know we've seen the majority of the money length go out to December. You know, after the March acres or the March prospective plantings report, so the length is out there. So any sort of liquidation there, um, you know, put more pressure on the December corn and November beans than any other contract. Uh, but that being said, I mean, the soyseps corn spread uh, is correcting here today. It traded uh, that thing has been on absolute terror because cash is so firm. Um, and the order flow pressuring the new crop spread in September kind of caught up in that as well. But we had, uh, you know, SIF corn was down 9 cents yesterday, SIF beans were down about 9 cents. Um, and with the spread trading towards, you know, north of 80, um, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing a correction of that spread here uh, today and, and kind of reflecting the weaker cash that resulted. So maybe, you know, between, you know, open interest liquidation you know, versus cashes, uh, grain moving, getting priced, uh, you know, that might've, uh, uh, done the, the market might've done its job there that the, considering that the cash
6: was a little bit weaker yesterday.
0: All right. Let's look out to next week, Garrett. We've got next Thursday quarterly grain stocks, final acreage numbers coming up. Where do you think the risks of moving the market is going to be on those two reports?
9: Well, considering the break that we've had in beans, I mean, you know, we've lost a dollar eleven in November beans, and and July beans are down, you know, ninety seven cents through the seven forty five break. The historical tendency, I would expect, I would expect uh, to surprise in beans. To be honest with you, I mean, uh, the market has a tendency to to overestimate acres. They have a tendency to overestimate stocks in this report. Um, and, and that's kind of what I'm looking for, especially considering the break that we've had. Um, you know, corn's been weak or two. Um, I would, I'm just considering the way cash is, is reacting, um, I'm not necessarily sure we're going to see a bearish stocks report by any means, and as far as the acres are concerned, that's, a, that's really, uh, that's anybody's guess here because, um, you know, with the prevent plant in the north, uh, in the Northern Plains, I'm um, not sure anyone's got a great handle on it. A lot of the private estimates at this point are, are leaning towards more corn acres, less bean acres, which is simply just a correction from the March numbers. Um, but, um, you know, it, that, that's, that would be a little bit, of, I think it would be more friendly, uh, a bean report than thing corn.
0: All right. Well, we will know before too long. Those both get dropped next Thursday, June 30th. Folks, that's Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And folks, thank you for joining us this week for AOA. We hope you have a very safe and productive weekend. And we'll see you right back here on Monday for more conversations about agriculture. Take care, everyone. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from
5: around the world. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40-plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nast.usda.gov backslash AgCensus. Thank you.